School CEO Conversations is an Aptogy Media production. We like to have insightful conversations with education's most inspiring and thoughtful leaders. In this episode, Dismantling Racism in Elementary School, we talk with Dr. Carol Kelly, Superintendent of Oak Park Elementary School, District 97 in Illinois. Here are our hosts, Michael and Joy. Carol, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, just to jump right in, I know that you actually have kind of an interesting path to the superintendency, and you started your career as an engineer. So mm-hmm. how did you get into education from that? Oh, gosh. So that's a really great story. So I studied engineering undergrad, mm-hmm. and actually after a few years of working as an engineer, I went back to graduate school for my MBA. So I went down to Charlottesville, Virginia, mm-hmm. and the plan was for me to go there and then come back. But I went to UVA and then I got recruited by a company called Johnson & Johnson. That's how I ended up in New Jersey. Met a guy who was really smitten by me. uh, (laughs) And at the time, I was attending a church in central New Jersey and tutoring the kids that went to school in the Somerset, New Jersey area. And I was finding that I was enjoying things outside of work versus my day job Mm -hmm. and began like the search of what is it that I want to do when I really grow up? Because (laughs) I don't know that I ever honestly thought about that. So I never really stopped to think, what is it that I feel is my calling, my purpose? What is it that I would enjoy doing? When I was getting married, I literally left J&J, and the minister of my church asked if I could work there temporarily while I was working at the church, um, finding myself. (laughs) There were these kids in Somerset at the middle school that got into about 16, because we called them Sweet 16. They got into a huge fight the moment they entered the building, and they were coming from two different areas of the community, and the only place where they saw each other was at school. It was like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Mm -hmm. When they got to the school, they had a huge fight. The kids were expelled from school, and my minister was serving as a mediator Mm -hmm. for the parents who lived in the church's community. Even though the kids were expelled, he got the school district to allow him to run a school in the basement of the church. (laughs) He got the school district to allow him to handpick the teachers. So that's really how I got into education. So I never thought about going to college to be a teacher at all. I think for me, the why has always been the things that I did outside of work when I was working for Johnson & Johnson. Mm -hmm. You know, my friends and I, we would have these book studies. And I remember one of the books that we read, I think it was called The Conspiracy to Destroy Black Boys. Mm -hmm. And when I landed on, like, I want to get into education, I wanted to get into education because I wanted to play a role in creating the conditions in the system where If there was going to be a conspiracy, it was going to be a conspiracy to create conditions um, where all students can thrive, but particularly Black girls Mm -hmm. and boys. 
So when you're thinking about all of the systems that need to be dismantled, it starts to feel almost kind of impossible. So mm -hmm. how do you decide what to focus on and what to narrow in on? So I personally am a huge proponent on listening to student voices. So I think like when you have those data pieces mm -hmm. and you could look at it from a systems level mm -hmm. and find patterns and themes, those patterns and themes informed by student voices mm -hmm. help you to see what are the systems that need to be addressed. If I can give an example of that, students share with us that they saw that in terms of our dress code, mm -hmm. that it was our black and brown students, mm -hmm. girls and boys, that were receiving infractions based upon what they were wearing, more so than their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because in our code of conduct, we had things like you shouldn't have a hoodie on, mm -hmm. that you shouldn't wear like a do-rag or a hat. Mm -hmm. There were certain flip-flops that they would receive a office referral. Whereas other students would wear flip-flops, but they were like more Birkenstock, and they would not receive consequences. So listening to the student voices, we looked at that section of our Effective Student Behavior Handbook, and we revised it. So we pulled all of that content out so that there weren't students that were receiving more office referrals than other students. So that's just like an example, mm -hmm. you know, addressing it at the systems level and finding that it was creating conditions that were oppressing a group of students and not really allowing all to thrive. Yeah, and I think for your staff, talking about those systems is probably really helpful, right? Yeah, I think it really shifts the power, if you think about it, like our staff members listening to the student voices and shifting our practices and our procedures based on student lived experiences is really powerful and definitely, I think, an anti-racist move. And often when people hear the term racism or anti-racism, they think on an individual level, mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, you're calling me a racist right. and not at the systems level. So I just really want to point out that every industry, I can't think of one industry where it's not just deeply embedded in what we're doing. So no one here thought, oh, I'm going to do something unfair to black students mm -hmm. today and write this in our effective student behavior handbook, right? They probably just, oh, you can't wear a hoodie. But it helps us to think about our practices through the lived experiences of our students, that whether they are telling it to us themselves or we see in another outcome data, but we know that our conditions don't allow all of our students to thrive. So I did want to know, how are you working with your teachers to get them to be more equity conscious and really mm -hmm. have that like anti-racist lens that you were talking about? For me, my personal theory of action is that it's all about building capacity. I'm a huge proponent on investing in the people. So basically, if you think about what scientists do, scientists have laboratories where they go in and they do like different experiments. Mm -hmm. So for me, like what I've been trying to do was just build the conditions for our staff that they feel safe to come together 
around the district's vision statement to plan various experiments, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, to help us get closer and closer and closer and closer to the district's vision. So it has not been like this straight, narrow path, nor has it been really clean. It's Mm -hmm. been very messy, Mm -hmm. but I have to say that when I look at some of our building leaders and teacher leaders that have been on this journey, their thoughtfulness around like what needs to be done today versus at the start of this journey, their growth is tangible. So an example, our teachers wanted to have a one school, one book where every middle schooler received this book called Stamped. And our teachers literally created a unit of study. But I could give you example after example of things that are coming from our teacher leaders and our teacher teams that has really been about trying to create this learning culture where the individual teams are really attempting to help the district overall get closer to this vision to create these positive learning environments that are equitable and inclusive for for all of our students. So I do like how you framed it around experiments because Mm -hmm. I feel like that really highlights how you have to really try, but you're also probably going to fail, and, yep. and that's okay, right? You yep. just have to get back up. You have to try again because you're really focused on the work yep. instead. you try again, and you keep getting, you know, again, it could be the engineer in me, mm-hmm. but I can't think of one scientist, one person that's invented something that didn't fail lots of time. Mm-hmm. So I think that we definitely want to create that safe space for our staff. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're talking about race, it can be a hard conversation to have yep. and can make people uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. how do you get teachers comfortable to even start that conversation? So we, through the National Equity Project, adopted the framework of John Powell, and he talks about targeted universalism. And with targeted universalism, the framework allows you to create universal goals for all students. Mm -hmm. So we have four universal goals that tie back into our vision statement. And these are universal goals that regardless of what parent, what teacher, when you ask them, but you want your child to feel known, nurtured, and celebrated. Yeah, they're going to say yes, say right? Yes, right? <laughs> and then you would say, like, what you want all children to be known, nurtured, and celebrated? They'll say yes. Okay, so that's where you start. So once you have your universal goal, then you think of what are the metrics that will help us see what's our current reality? For us, we use a survey question where we ask students, do you feel a sense of belonging? And when we look at that information, we selected an excellent target that we want every single student to reach this benchmark. We also will look at that same data disaggregated by a student demographics. So we disaggregate it by race, by gender, by socioeconomic status. Once we have that data, We compare every group, every grade level, every demographic group to the excellent target. So we're not comparing one student group to another student group, but we're comparing every single student group to our excellent target. And then we'll ask ourselves, which student group 
are furthest away from the excellent target? And then the why do we think that's so? That's where the collaborating with our students and listening to their experiences, and then you begin to target strategies to help address the gap between that student group and the excellent target. So in a way, you are able to address issues of race by asking, like, why do we think this African-American student group is furthest away from the excellent target? And for us, again, going back to that team of teachers that are having that conversation or that building principal that's having that conversation with their building leadership team, as they peel the onion back, eventually they're going to get to a conversation about race. Mm -hmm. They're going to get to, hey, let's read this book or let's watch this webinar. Let's attend this professional learning experience. And I think for us over time, as people have been seeking out the answers to what's going on, not from the standpoint of what's going on with the student group, but what's going on with us, <laughs> with our school, with our system that needs to be addressed. And I think that that's one of the ways that we can begin to have those tough conversations. And it's still really tough, but I think the framework from John Powell has really helped to set a great foundation. Mm -hmm. So I really like the point about switching the conversation away from a particular student group and then towards some of the systems and structures. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give another superintendent wanting to make that change? I definitely feel that you really have to invest in the leadership mm -hmm. so that they are able to facilitate those conversations. I also would advise designing your leadership team meetings to support these conversations and the work. So the way that our conversations are organized is that they happen at every level. So there's a district design team there are school teams, and then every school has uh, either grade level or departmental teams. Each of those teams have leaders, and I, and I think we were definitely supported in advancing this work by our board mm -hmm. being willing to invest in the leaders and building their capacity. Yeah, and when you say invest, I think most superintendents across the country would agree that equity is important, but... Mm -hmm what shows what's important to you is what you're spending mm -hmm. your time and you're spending your money on. And so yep. it sounds like that's what you're saying here is, I mean, if this is yep. something that really is important to you, I mean, you have to spend your time, you have to spend your money on it. There's no way around it. Yeah. So I realize what a huge blessing that is. You can't put all of this work on a superintendent or the yeah. building principals. So every single building principal in my district has an instructional coach. Every single building principal in this district has teacher leaders that receive stipends and it's heavy lifting that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So they are facilitating what many might call their professional learning communities, their mm -hmm. PLCs. We call them grade level teams. So every principal has the time and space where they can get together with grade level team leaders for their building leadership team meetings. So I think that there is the organizational structure mm -hmm that provides the time and space to do the work, as well as the investment in the PD for these leaders to understand using the data, 
you know, students' experiences, that data, to inform and drive their actions for improvement. So for those leaders that you picked out initially, how did you go about identifying them or creating those positions? So very early on, I would say we strategically used some positions that were already there. Mm -hmm. So our instructional coaches, actually, that was not a position that existed when I first started, but every school did have a data technology coach. So we eliminated that position, created a job description for the instructional coach, and we also, uh, there's one person on the cabinet team, uh, Dr. Carrie Cam, who invested a huge amount of time in really like building the capacity of our instructional coaches. For the grade level team leaders, I took advantage of the uh, union contract when I first came that called out this role. And it was just a stipend role, but there was no like PD, no support, no vetting process. Mm -hmm. So we very early on going into my second year, got the PD support for the individuals. But when we did that, we also upped the, uh, the stipend amount. But when we did that, we like were more specific in terms of like what the expectations were, created an application process mm-hmm. of, you know, you had to apply to be a teacher leader. But I think in addition to that, we created some other opportunities too. So We have also created other like learning lab spaces for teachers who had interest in, you know, whether it's equity or whether it's technology. We've done a lot of investment in professional learning experiences for staff that's not like a set and get, and it's more organic. So they really are designing their professional learning experiences centered around students' experiences, like what students are telling us, either like through their voice Mm -hmm. or what we're saying in terms of their performance and really trying to like use that information to help inform what actions we need to take to truly make our district a place where students can thrive. So what's an example of one of those experiences? Um, I would say one example would be I'm just going to take our our media specialists or uh, teacher librarians, some would call, for the last couple of years have been working in like a PLC cohort Mm -hmm. where they have literally been redesigning how they teach. One of the schools actually created a technology club where the students themselves are helping staff members with the design of their lessons to incorporate like more technology. And these are fifth graders. These are not like sixth through eighth graders. But to see what the teacher librarians are doing in terms of the types of lessons that they have created. I mean, their growth over the last couple of years Mm -hmm. have just been truly amazing. So that's, again, example of like the PD being more organic, being centered around like their work based on what they see as a need of the Mm -hmm. students that they've created like this learning experience for themselves as adults and have really helped to at least for our library spaces, have really truly helped to transform what that means to us now versus what it meant like six years ago. So it sounds like you've really focused on trying to give your teachers ownership over this as well. 
Absolutely. And when you combine that to helping them see that the purpose extends even beyond creating like these excellent learning experiences to being anti-racist with how you approach it, that it is even more, I think, impactful and even more powerful. Definitely would say we have still, as I would imagine, a lot of districts work to do, but every individual here, you know, from the superintendent on down, by our doing our own self-work, examining our own practices, Mm -hmm. being collaborative and willing to listen to the voices of our students and our families, like what their experiences are, and being open and reflective and willing to take risks in our learning, I definitely feel that we can create a culture to be able to be anti-racist here. Mm -hmm. So how did you go about justifying to people that this was important enough to financially invest in and, and actually budget for? I would say it was more of strategically aligning your finances with what your goals are. Mm -hmm. For example, by putting some investments up front, you're preventing costs that you would have Mm -hmm. if students reach crisis, you know, because they didn't have the appropriate supports. Or if you were having to send more students out of district. So I look at it as an investment that should be aligned with what your equity goals are, but also that there are some investments that we make for the purpose of equity that may look like to some that you're just spending, 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 but really the investment is so that you are preventing more spending Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, and you're also helping to ensure that, you know, all of your students feel a sense of belonging, that all of your students feel confident and persistent in their achievement, that all of your students are critical thinkers and global Mm -hmm. citizens. So I look at it a little bit differently. So by pointing to that mission and data, is that how you were able to void or or address any pushback? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't use the word story or narrative as if it's fictional, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you have to like know what your message is and based upon like what it is that we are attempting to do for students, you have to align the organization to support that. And I believe, again, that the magic really happens in the classroom. So what can the district's finances do to support the work of our uh, teachers, Mm -hmm. the work of our building principals, the work of those staff members who work with our children on a day-to-day basis, so that the doors that they walk through, regardless of what zip code a student might live in in your community, Mm -hmm. that all of those students have the foundational experiences that they need to be able to be their very, very best selves. Yeah, and I imagine with you talking about it around expenditures for the classroom, that probably helped you get buy-in, right? Absolutely. You have to just keep going back to that message, you know, when your community questions, like, why do you have all of those individuals who are not, you know, directly in front of students, like teaching them on a day-to-day basis, you have to go back and you have to remind them why we have the instructional coaches, why we have the special ed coordinators, why we have climate and uh, culture coaches. You have to remind them of the why 
how this is supporting, at the end of the day, the students' experiences that are equitable, that are inclusive, and focus on the whole child, not just a part of the student. So you just have to constantly remind people of that. And you also have to constantly, I feel, go back and evaluate how are these investments working? Are Mm -hmm. they, you know, you make the hypothesis, you have to go back and evaluate. You have to not just look at the student learning data and other metrics but you also have to go back and you have to ask the students and their families about their experiences and then like gathering the quantitative and the qualitative information, you can then again constantly look at how your organization is set up and if it is doing what you intended. And if not, you just constantly go back to the drawing board. So I don't think that the work is ever done. It's always like this continuous process and it should be this constant feedback loop where Mm -hmm. you are constantly trying to improve the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask, So much of this work you're doing out in the community and just statistically, you're bound to run into people who are either outwardly racist or who just find this work kind of political. So how do you keep your position as some kind of community figure while still protecting your students? You just have to stay focused and on message. And I don't mean on message as if like it's fake, it doesn't mean anything, Mm -hmm. but Trust me when I say as a black female superintendent and a affluent community like Oak Park, I have seen some things, whether Mm -hmm. they are microaggressions or macroaggressions, Mm -hmm. and I just stay focused on our vision and like what we're trying to do here. And I look at it this way. When you do hear things that some may intend to be hurtful, That's an opportunity to be even more focused because that means that we are making some movement. And Mm -hmm. and I think for our students and staff, it's important that we consider beforehand what are the things that we can put in place as a preventative. I just think about the things that my parents and my neighbors did to protect us from the ugliness so that we could just be kids. And I want for us as a district to do the same thing for our students. So we have clubs in every single one of our buildings that's a student voice club. Our two middle schools have social justice clubs. We have partnerships with organizations like Yumba and the township here that provides safe spaces for our students to go to. And I think like really thinking about like what are the supports to create that safe haven, to create a safeguard so that our kids could just be kids. And I think that it's really imperative for us as a district to really examine internally (laughs) what are the ways that we're causing harm to our students Mm -hmm. so that we can eliminate those practices. But from an external perspective, we really are blessed in having the opportunities to work with so many providers, as well as the resources to have so many clubs and activities where we are creating those spaces for our students. 
So I know in other areas of the country, some superintendents might be dealing with communities who aren't even ready to start talking about race or aren't Mm -hmm. ready to start doing any of this work. So I'm kind of curious, at what point do you think it is leadership's job to kind of start pushing these conversations forward? Or Mm -hmm. do you think it's something where you really need to focus on creating buy-in from day one? You know, for me personally, just my style is more collaborative and Mm -hmm. less go in and this needs to be done like now. And that works maybe for some people that is not a natural fit for me. So definitely my process is a lot slower, um, some would say. Some would probably even say that it's really, really hard for them to actually see Mm -hmm. some of the changes that are happening because they're so gradual. But I would say for me that that works. That may not necessarily work Mm -hmm. for other leaders. Other leaders may feel more compelled. And I totally get it that you are losing students by taking that that slower approach. Mm -hmm. But someone asked the question of us regarding the anti-racism curriculum, and they asked the question, what resistance are you seeing from the community and from the staff? And the response is that from the staff, none. Mm -hmm. And you know why that's so. Literally for the last five years, we have been building up to be able to do that. And I can honestly say that a lot of the work that we're doing, a lot of what I have the pleasure of saying, this is what our district is doing, came from our staff. Mm -hmm. It did not come from me. And I just get goosebumps every time Mm -hmm. I think about that after the entire country witnessed the horrific murder of George Floyd, I did not have to be the one to say, maybe our middle school students should all read the young adult version of Stamped. I did not have to be the one to say, perhaps our K-5 teacher should be using the teaching tolerance social justice standards. I did not have to be the one to say that. Mm -hmm. Our staff said that. So yes, can you come into a district and see like the change that's that's necessary and announce your action plan for that change? Absolutely. It just personally for me is not my style. And I also feel if I left Oak Park, I feel very confident that a lot of the changes over the last five years will sustain themselves because there are leaders from our classroom, our school buildings, our district level in the community, our students. There are leaders throughout this entire organization that Mm -hmm. will continue this work. Mm, That's incredible. And I think we hear a lot of superintendents use that term, like you have to go slow to go fast. And it really seems like that's the approach you guys are taking. Yes. And it's very messy. I never understood that when I was in graduate school and they talked about the messiness of the work. It's very messy. And sometimes I think as leaders, you don't see the changes and it is really necessary for our spirits and our souls to every now and then just kind of go back and map out or write down or journal out what all the district has accomplished for students. Just go year by year. And when you go year by year, you can begin to see like the thread and you can begin to see the changes. And ever so often, I think that we as leaders are just blessed with like those small, small moments where you could just kind of sit back and say, 
wow, what a difference, you know, <laughs> what a difference. I guess there has been impact here. And there there always is impact, right? But sometimes when you're so close to the work and you're in the messiness of it, you don't see it. I feel very fortunate to work with an incredible group of people. And I do feel that we don't often just sit back and say that this is hard work, but important work. And I'm so grateful to be a part of this journey. Yeah. And and something I was going to ask too, and I don't even really have a formal question about this, but I feel like sometimes these conversations are falling on the shoulders of Black superintendents. Mm. Like when we're talking about equity, a lot of times we're talking to Black superintendents instead of white. Mm -hmm. And sometimes... I get it. Yep. So I'm really excited because I do agree with you um, that my national organization for superintendents literally just started an equity cohort. And that may not sound like a lot, but if you think about the majority of superintendents in this country are still male and they're still white Mm -hmm. and that AASA now has an equity cohort. That's pretty remarkable. So I do see that the tides, I won't even say that they are moving, (laughs) but I do feel like there may be some movement there where our allies know that it's going to take like everyone, as John Lewis talked about, getting in some good and necessary trouble. Thanks for listening to this School CEO Conversation. You can follow Dr. Kelly on Twitter at Dr. K for Equity. To learn more about how she is building equity at Oak Park 97, visit schoolceo.com slash Kelly. While you're there, subscribe to School CEO for more advice, stories, and strategies for leading your schools. School CEO is brought to you by Aptigy. This episode is sponsored by Frontlines of Justice. Frontlines of Justice is a digital platform crafted to utilize the power of film to address social, racial, and educational issues in America through innovative technology, premium content, and influential educators. It's like nothing you've ever seen, offering content you actually want about issues you actually care about. In these times of social unrest, racial injustice, and remote learning, Frontlines of Justice is the solution that we need. E-learning that is changing hearts and minds from the front lines. Join the front lines at frontlinesofjustice.com.